0: Great changes are taking place. These are not a result of any one group or teaching, but they're a result of millions of people defining one or more ways in which they can conserve energy, aid local self-reliance, or provide for themselves. All of us would acknowledge our work is modest, and it's the totality of such modest work that's impressive. There is so much to do, and there will never be enough people to do it. We must all try to increase our skills, to model trials, and to pass on the results. If a job is not being done, we can form a small group and do it. It doesn't matter if the work we do carries the permaculture label or not, it just matters that we do it. That was written by Bill Mollison, and welcome to Permaculture Voices. <laughs> Welcome to Permaculture Voices. I'm your host Diego, D-I-E-G-O. This is a show about going out there and being that change that you want to see in the world. Actively participating in changing the future by using more permaculture to do whatever it is that you do. I believe that we can all do that. There's just one key. You have to start. So hopefully this show will help kickstart your journey to follow your own permaculture path and take that first step so you can go out there and create a ruckus. If you feel alone at any point in this journey, fear not, I'm going right through it alongside you and so are many of the guests on this show. On to today's show. There's a book, a book that's 576 pages long. It was first published in 1988. Some of you may have read it. Some of you maybe haven't. Quote, This book is about designing sustainable human settlements and preserving and extending natural systems. It covers aspects of designing and maintaining a cultivated ecology in any climate. The principles of design, design methods, understanding patterns in nature, climatic factors, water, soils, earthworks, techniques and strategies in the different climatic types, aquaculture, and the social, legal, and economic design of human settlement. It calls into question not only the current methods of agriculture, but also the very need for a formal food agriculture if wastelands and the excessive lawn culture within towns and cities are devoted to food production and small livestock suited to local needs. The world can no longer sustain the damage caused by modern agriculture, monocultural forestry, and thoughtless settlement design. And in the near future, we will all see the end of wasted energy, or the end of civilization as we know it, due to human-caused pollution and climatic changes. Strategies for the necessary changes in social investment policy, politics itself, and towards regional or village self-reliance, are now desperately needed, and examples of these strategies are given. It's hoped that this manual will open the global debate that must never end, and so give a guide to the form of a future in which our children have at least a chance of reasonable existence. End quote. That was written by Bill Mollison, and this book that I'm referring to is one of the books that Bill Mollison wrote. Permaculture, a designer's manual. And this show is Jeff Lawton covering the whole permaculture designer's manual in about an hour at PV1 that happened in March of 2014. Enjoy.
1: When I first did my permaculture course, my PDC with Bill in 1983, I kind of left the course a skeptic um, and um, I didn't say a word, um, I didn't ask a question. And Bill told me later, when I told him that, I was a bit feeling guilty, I said, I didn't ask a question, Bill, he said, you're probably just a sponge, uh, just sponging it up. I went out of my way to check some of the improbable truths that Bill talked about. It sounded kind of crazy, he could come up with all this information, and as I started to check, all these things turned out to be true. Um, Everything I checked uh, was correct, so... I then went through a phase after feeling guilty of doubting what he was saying to check in everything he did say. And I started to pay very close attention to every word that he would written, every word he says in presentations, just to make sure that I wasn't missing something. So with the manual, the first chapter is literally an introduction. An introduction to the, to the subject, really. And kind of the more important part of the intro is after you get past the responsibility stage where we all need to take responsibility for our own existence and the existence of the future generations. So it's a responsibility introduction, really. It goes into then how we have to really energy audit things and how society would look. And I don't think we can really fully understand how society would look if it was a permaculture society everywhere outside. But it introduces that sort of theme. And when you're looking at this book, when you're trying to read this book, it's really hard. (laughs) it's It's a manual. He called it a manual. He could have called it all kinds of things. People do give it unusual names. But he called it a manual, like a manual for a car or a manual for an appliance. You don't go to bed at night and read a manual. Well, some of you might. But you don't You don't read a manual, right, from cover to cover. It doesn't make a lot of sense anyway. It's so full of information. It's so information dense. If you read one sentence, it's like reading a paragraph. You read one paragraph, it's like reading a chapter. You read one chapter, it's like reading a, a small book. Um so, what it is, is a manual for design science as an earth repair system. So, you've got to know where you are in the manual. you are got to know that if you're going to work on the brakes, you don't want to be reading a, a section on the engine. If you're reading about the steering of a car, you don't want to be reading about the, the brakes. You know? You've know, got to know where you are in the manual. So it's very carefully written. There's a sequence that he wrote. And every single chapter, even the order of the chapters and the names of the chapters have, have great relevance. And looking at the names of the chapters and thinking about why he named those chapters is one thing, it's a, it's a very good key, very good trick. Think about that very deeply. But another key into this book is to look at the back of most of the chapters. Not all the chapters, but most of the chapters have a principal summary the back of the chapter or a designer's checklist. So to go to the back of each chapter and read that first, if you understand that, that's the key into the chapter. That's what I tell my students anyway. It's, 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 it's a, a way into understanding the book. Now, after chapter one, the introduction, the next chapter is the big one, and everybody wants you to jump into the third chapter, which is Methods of Design, but the second chapter is Concepts and Themes of Design, where there is the largest principle summary. That is the foundation, really, of the book. It's where you lay down the concepts and the themes of design itself, where you go into Um, production, you go into yields, you go into products, you go into niches. You start to actually define what really is a yield, what really is a product. What are the the foundations of the subject? Why? What are the themes? What are the concepts? It's literally that. It it gives you a, a true grounding. It's definitely the most serious of all the chapters it's the one you really need to understand because it lays down those foundations of why we need to design so i think that is the for me the most important chapter in the cor- in, in the whole course that i teach the concepts and themes of design and people want to rush through it they want to get out of there fast they want to get into how how do we do it and that's the next chapter so Once you, if you hold people back, if you say, look, let's reread this one. Let's restudy the concepts and themes of design. let's, Let's really start to understand what are those main frames of design. Because the next chapter, the methods of design, is one of the smallest designers' checklists, it's reasonably simple how we approach. There's only so many ways that we approach with a method of designing. And the one that's most common is we simply analyse the situation. We we go through slope. We go through orientation. Which way are we facing on the compass? Um, And we go through the use of elements and the positioning of elements for their energy efficiency planning, what we call zonal placement, and we go out to then sectors of design. that That is the most common approach, the analysis, but it also goes into observational design, how we just observe from observations, almost like an indigenous way of designing, how we how we look at events around us and start to analyse the events over a period of time, and and often we don't have time to do that as consultants. We don't are we're, we're time poor in the modern world. We don't have time reference. Uh, our time is often is very low quality and its in its we're very short of time. So it's almost a meditative state that one has to get into to see relevant elements as you're walking through landscape when you're not really arguing between your left brain and your right brain. You're getting yourself into a zone where you're, you're literally just receiving information. And when something pulls you out of that meditative state, you then reference it and come back and, and examine that later. So indigenous people often say, or traditional people often say, Westerners, modern people, don't sit still long enough to ask the right question. So, that's, that's observational. Then, Bill talks about that random assembly of lists. And a lot of people don't take that seriously. But the random assembly of lists is really where we, we put down an assembly of elements that we intend to include in design. And then we cross-reference and we look at the major lists and their subsets and then other major lists and their subsets and we just randomly cross with no particular rhyme or reason, just are we missing something? We've got so used to seeing a reductionist simplified landscape. We've got so used to being told that our efficiency comes out of singular elements that are machinery maintained and, 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 and simplified into mass production on singular time zones instead of our expanded time throughout a design. We're really designers of time space as well as, as, well as physical space. We don't just stack elements, physical elements into a design. We stack time into a design. The classic book, the One Straw Revolution by Fukuoka was really such a classic because he stacked time into a rice field by crossing crop zones of time and linking them together with a, with a perennial clover. He stacked time simply, but we've taken that whole concept a lot further. So we stacked time into large perennial elements. We allow our systems to demonstrate their evolutions through that time stacking as well. So it's quite often we're never quite sure what we're going to get, except it's going to get better, it's going to get more diverse, definitely going to get more interesting. So when you, when you have a random assembly list, then you're really, you're really opening up possibilities. You're being very open to what might not have seemed obvious initially, because we're so used to walking around in a simplified landscape. Now, that really takes us through the main methods of design. It's, a lot of it is quite common sense, and then some of it is where you've just literally gotta trust yourself that this is not so common an approach. Some of it's analysis, some of it almost seems like a game, and some of it seems like you're trusting your intuition. You're actually making a bit of a guess. By the time you get to that stage, you're actually entitled to make a bit of a guess. Not so It's very rare that people do that careful analysis. So you've, you've come a long way at that stage. So your des, designing <coughs> is, is now just about to take one more leap Because you're in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, methods of design, you jump into chapter 4. And chapter 4 is, it's really ours, this one. This is the one the universities would probably throw out if they took our curricula and and dissected it into different departments. Chapter 4, pattern understanding. That's literally the title. It's not just patterns. It's pattern understanding. So, chapter four is really the glue. It really stands us alone. We're very different on that one element, that chapter four. When we start to look at the patterns around us, from the micro to the macro, we're looking at the expressions in the universe of how energy is expressed in physical form. We're looking at the capturing of energy and its expression no matter how large or small we want to look at it. And at the point that you get to pattern and you start to explain what patterns are, they're simplified form. They're very, very simple forms. And not so many forms, but an infinite number of slight imperfections. You start to open people's understanding there. The links that we make between elements that cooperate with natural patterns it's really the clincher on the on the start of the understanding it's the it's the clinching element so when you get to chapter four people are starting to then realize there is something very special there's something very special about this set of understandings it's only through understanding the patterns are expressed through energy efficiency in natural systems. The simplification of really everything that's around us into understanding the basic patterns of the universe. And it doesn't matter how large and it doesn't matter how small. As a teacher... It's often, it's usually your students that let you know from their design work, from their questions, what it is you're not getting across right. Pattern is one of those subjects that you either get it or you don't get it. When you get it, you can never lose it. People say, I suddenly got it. I suddenly realized. It's like riding a bike. All of a sudden you can ride. And you, you never forget to write again. So suddenly you feel the motion you're in there, you've got this pattern understanding. Now, something that's often left out, that's not expressed enough, is the order of size, the natural orders of size. And we have expressions that say, in, in, in language that say, we're out of order. And we are, we are out of order. The orders of scale of size, relevant within our design patterning, is something we have to concentrate on. Bill references it very clearly in the manual. He talks about orders of size between five and nine. There are no orders of size less than five. There are no orders greater than nine in anything in the known universe. Very rarely do people emphasize that quite enough or then quote exactly how that works. We don't know why it works. We don't know why it's those numbers. But they're all around us as reference. Once you realize that, you realize you're designing within those orders. You're looking at the orders of everything that you're applying. You realize why the zones come in orders of size too. You realize why the smaller, the smaller zone one to the zone five increase in size. There are five zones, between five and nine again. Everything we look at, the skeleton of the body, is a seven or a six if you don't count the backbone. Down to the fingers. When you're looking at the larger orders, everything in the larger orders is fewer in number and slower in movement. When we go to the smaller orders of size, they're greater in number and faster in movement. Everything that we look at around us is patterned in a form. So, when you're, when you're referencing that, right, you're having to give people examples. Those examples start to change people's actual understanding. Right? They start to realise this is bigger than I thought. This refers to everything around me. So you're, you're then you're, you're, you're referencing also the pattern of timing the pattern of sound you're giving people references of pattern in every dimension so they start to realize that this is this is bigger in every way than they thought this this design system applies in more than just the physical in more than just food supply in more than just space it goes out through community itself it goes out through the patterns of people in community and the patterns of the way we behave. So it's a it's a it's a reference point that when we look at our design work, does it fit in with patterns? If it doesn't fit in, if it doesn't come out as harmonic patterns, it's probably gonna change itself. It's not gonna evolve into something that's complicating itself, it's going to simplify itself into harmonic form. It's going to come backwards instead of going forwards. So, really, when we get to chapter 4, pattern understanding, once we've given people some level of understanding of pattern and how we apply it, We've really covered the design course. The design course is really in the first chapters between one to four. After after pattern, everything is really a reference back to the first four chapters. We've got the ability to design at that point. We've got our checking mechanisms. We've got our references. We know how to assemble elements. We know that if we don't get it right, if we don't get design right, what happens is we get chaos. Harmony and chaos we can now reference in relation to pattern assemblies. Chaos is when a system is oversupplied with energy that it can't put to productive use. It goes into chaos. Right on the edge of chaos is the ultimate opportunity for creative form. We can take our design out and out and out to a point where we step over the chaotic line, pull back one step, we're in the ultimate opportunity for creative form because we're just back inside the harmonic event. So we we play with the edges of form We occupy and extend the edge. I love the statement, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. You're you're playing with the edge that defines form, and the form that you want is a harmonic form in every way. It's not just the physical patterns. It's the time sequences as well. It's the people sequences that become more and more refined, more and more complex, more and more interesting. That's exactly what happens in natural systems. So at that point, people are kind of exploding with the possibilities. You're referencing all of these things in your mind that you've seen in the past. Your life experiences have new meaning. You're starting to refile your desktop in your in in, in your mind. You're, you're sort of your right side of your brain's arguing with the left side of the brain about pattern and practicality. You're getting comfortable about sort of left and right switches across the sort of synapses. Um, you're feeling comfortable about being in the middle, in between, when you're doing observational work. You kind of your brain sort of excited about all this but you can't yet focus you need to focus and focus comes starts to come out of the the next set of chapters so you've got the themes, you've got the, the methods of design, you've got the concepts, you've got themes, you've got the methods of design you've got the pattern understanding starting to really come in things are starting to get exciting but you need to move now into focusing. And what Bill has done is, chapter five, is climatic factors. And it's so important there to move to understanding exactly how climate makes a difference. If you don't know exactly which climate you're in, and there's these major sets of climates to these minor climates. There are climates that are affected by the orographic effect, by landscape itself, understanding that the further you are from an ocean, the more extremes there are over an annual climate, the hotter the summers, the colder the winters, the maritime effect moderating that, the altitude up or even the altitude down making all the difference. What we call today a climate analog, knowing exactly which latitude you're at, what altitude you're at, and what distance from an ocean gives you a starting point. But then are there landscape effects around you like mountain ranges and wind shadows? Where exactly are you? What What is it? What, what, what landscape are we designing for in relation to climate? Because climate actually shapes most of our landscape forms. So our landscape profiles, which are hard to separate from climate, because the arid lands are definitely an angular shape, and the humid landscapes are the rounded shapes, and the volcanic landscapes have a a particular shape, and then we have the low islands and the high islands and the flatlands and the wetlands and the coastlands and the estuaries. We have these variations you've got to identify what they are. And climatic factors start us in that direction. So Bill put that in after pattern because that is a major pattern all around us. That's a pattern that, that we talk about every day, the weather. So it's very important that we take that extremely seriously as designers, it starts to focus, start to focus us in. Now, the main interrupter of the energies of the weather, the main element that receives the energy of the weather and pacifies the weather, the one that we are getting more deficient of all the time, is the energy receiving mechanism, the ecosystem. The ecosystem majors in trees and expresses itself ultimately in top predator. A hunting pair of jaguar take 10,000 hectares of Amazon. If you've got a hunting pair of jaguar in the Amazon, you've got 10,000 hectares of good quality Amazon. The wolves shape the rivers in the Yellowstone Park here. It's been understood that Aren't we top predator? We appear to be top predator, but we're top predator that has a choice, it seems. Do we wreck it, or do we bring it back into abundance? Do we take our position, or do we ignore our position? The next chapter, after climate factors, and, and he said, and Bill writes factors. He wants facts. He's talking facts. Pin it down to the Facts. Chapter 5, chapter 6, it's a lovely sequence. The next sequence, chapter, the next one is trees and their energy transactions. That's the name of the chapter, not just trees. It's not about trees necessarily. It's their energy transactions. And the energy they're transacting with Is mostly the climate. The input is the climate. The moderating element of our climate. Building that ecosystem major layer, the tree. The canopy tree. So it's it's a, a very unusual chapter that he put in there. It follows climate exactly. It's the response to climate or it's the... It's the moderator backwards to climate. If you've got it right, our systems moderate the climate through that energy transaction in the trees, in the ecosystems. Ecosystems are massive batteries of life full of energy, just like a battery's charged with electricity. The first thing he honours is condensation. The first little story tells is fountains, the rain trees of the Canary Islands. The Guanche Indians harvested the condensation of those trees as their water supply in the islands where it didn't rain. The one element of trees that's often not counted is the condensation. In the arid lands and the dry lands where things kind of accentuate pretty extremely, as such fragile landscapes. The condensation from desert vegetation, from desert trees, can equal 80% of the rainfall. can be equivalent to 80% in volume of the rainfall. So a treeless desert or a, a dry land that's been removed of vegetation can have an 80% drop in total precipitation. Precipitation is not just rain. It's however the water is received to the soil. And without the condensating surface, then you don't have the condensation drip. Most that that the maritime environments are moderated by the condensation from the humidity of the ocean. So if you live near the ocean, you get an extra condensation. You get condensation every morning. But even out in dry land, there are times when it's not raining, but there's humidity in the air. And if you have a condensating surface, you've got the drip. You've got the the condensating drip. We have to understand that that moderating element harvests and moderates the energy of the climate, the previous chapter. And as you remove it, energy is constant. It's got to go somewhere. It doesn't just disappear what we've got is extremely energetic weather we've got weather that's going in every direction at once we've got the hottest day, the driest day, the wettest day, the coldest day, for that day on record, everywhere and you can reference that you can see that happening in traditional systems, you can see it in the pattern understanding that people have had of their climates where they've recorded it with traditions a lot of those traditions don't work anymore And those are thousands of years of reference. So the moderation of climate through energy transaction of trees is a very important thing then to understand. So from there, the next chapter, so we go from chapter 6 to chapter 7, is water. One word. That's all he puts, water. From the the climate to the trees to the water that's then created and moderated from that event. And everything about water in all its forms. Life is based in water and the carbon creation from the energy transaction of the trees. It's a sequence that works perfectly then because you've got some understanding of where you're going. So, water is one of the things that has some of the most constants. There are so many expectations out there that there there are no real constants, but there are. There are many things that you can reference that are absolutely constant. And water has many, many constants. So, it sits perfectly level. It it's expands when it freezes. It keeps itself at a set temperature when you, when you heat it. At a certain point, evaporation cools it. So it stays at 100 degrees centigrade. It won't get any hotter. Condensation warms the air. Evaporation cools the air. They're all constants about water, so we can use those constants. When we've got evaporation as a cooling element, we can guarantee that's going to cool, and transpiration off the trees cools the air. Condensation in the early morning warms the air. Water is an element we can design initially as a priority of approach previous to anything else previous to zones previous to sectors as consultants the first thing we're looking at is what's the ultimate possibility for water in any design not that you might install it not that you might see it all but you look optimistically uphill for water downhill for heat but uphill for water and your water is your priority initially when you're exploring all the possibilities. Water access structures are almost like a mantra of approach prior to anything else. But water takes priority because you can't change the way it behaves. You can pattern it to be more life enhancing. Water water is one of the major elements, the major element with carbon created from the trees, from the, from the plants. So coming in that sequence, understand your climate, understand your, your ecosystem interaction through the energy transaction of trees, then into water, now we can really start to pattern. Water has so many constants in, in the way you can pattern it out through landscape, but there's different qualities of water. We're looking at wastewater on the outfall and how we clean that up with plant systems, biological cleaning, life cleaning systems, natural cleaning systems on the out. How we capture water in landscape and how we capture water on hard surfaces. How we can provide ourselves with water to drink, water to use, water for our stock, but rehydration of whole landscapes. So we're looking at water captured slowed used and as many options as we can to create life events we're facilitating life events through water water is a very important element to so that whole chapter covers just all the possibilities that we can have for water so we we're, we're, we're in a major priority element there. As we get that right, as we start to get a response from that, what we get in the next subject, the next chapter, is soils. Because an indicator that you've got design right, a very simple one in landscape is the you're creating soil. Soil is increasing in quantity and quality. If you're checking your system in the physical form on landscape, soil is one of the best checks. And that's something that agriculture completely fails in and is getting worse. Soil is destroyed, washed away, blown away, degraded in quality and sold and taken out of production for hundreds if not thousand plus years. We have the ability to destroy soils at a faster rate. than soil, again, one word title, right in the middle of the book, the two titles right in the middle, water and soil. From, we get out of pattern, we got there, and we got climate factors, trees and their energy transactions, water creates, with that together, we've got soil. It's not so much about understanding what soil you've got. There's some discussion of that in the soils chapter. There's some understanding of the organic table of soils. There's a periodic table in there. But it's more the understanding of how do we actually create soil? How do we work with those ecosystems by carbon and water enhancement to actually create better soil? Because soil is our base resource. The larger we go in size, the larger we go in application, the harder it is for us to personally create soil. In a small garden, of course, you can create an inch of soil every year. You can create two inches of soil a year in a small space. But as soon as you go out in area, then you have to partner with an ecosystem. You have to partner with a soil creative ecosystem. There, we have to go way beyond organic. Organic doesn't necessarily mean it's not destroying soils or even not exploiting people. There's some pretty exploitive organic farming going on out there, especially now that it's trendy. I think we have to step past, way past organic. We have to be ecosystemic in our production. We have to be soul creative in our production. If we're gonna produce surplus, A system that's sustainable produces more energy than it consumes, enough in surplus to maintain and replace that system's components, parts, over their lifetimes. And that's a basic, that's a a minimal criteria of sustainability. If you want to trade surplus, you've got to go beyond that. You've got to harvest more energy than is needed to replace and maintain your system, to have surplus to trade. That means you've got to be more soil creative the large, if you want to go on to the scale of agriculture we have today you're going to have to have major ecosystem elements very large it's got to be a major part of the uh, of large landscape otherwise you, you just won't make it on the energy audit so your understanding of soil and its creation by putting together elements That speed up ecosystem processes is an extremely important part of understanding how to design. You're now coming more and more in focus and you're coming back and all the time back to the first four chapters in reference. The next chapter is earthworks and earth resources. This is one of my favourites because we start to deal with the big machinery, we start to terraform the landscape, we start to shape things up. A lot of time to harvest water, a lot of time to run off water, it's, it's to create hard surface runoff so we don't have problems with water as well as capturing water as well as soaking water in. So we're often creating bodies of water, soakages of water for rehydration, and also run off to make a landscape more hospitable to structures or access ways and services. We start to look at how we design. It's it's terraforming. It's the reconstructive earth surgery. When you look at the size of the machines we use, if it was a brain surgeon working on your skull, it would be nanosurgery. If you're looking at the cranium of the Earth, it's actually miniature work. You could hardly see it from a spacecraft. You know, you you can see our work from Google Earth just about. We're also looking at the resources, the Earth resources. You're never quite sure what you're gonna find when you go down in the ground. Down in that dinosaur country, there's all kinds of resources in the ground. So there are sands, there are gravels, there are clays, there are liquid muds, there are different rocks and strata. People get nervous about this and it was, should we be doing this? We've done this forever. Humanity has terraformed the ground. We are terraformers of the surface of the earth. We're creative terraformers in every way. There's hardly any of this planet that we haven't moved around to our convenience, to our benefit most of the time. Now we, a lot of the time we're ignoring it now. We we don't necessarily see what we could adapt as positive landscaping. But we have more ability now than ever before to use modern equipment to do this incredibly quickly. So your your Earthworks and Earth Resources is a chapter of understanding what is possible. And since the manual has been written, which is 1988, Bill wrote the manual, new technology has emerged so the equipment that, is, that we can use has gone further. So we have GPS-guided machines now. We have satellite-guided machines. Um, laser levels are, are very common on machines now. It's almost the norm on most machinery. What we can now do to rehabilitate landscape and rehydrate landscape is come down in timescale hundreds of times. So there's a very positive side to this because as the situation is getting worse and worse, the potential for repair is getting better and better. The timescale now, if we wanted to repair major landscapes, if we applied our resources to them, we could repair in just a few years. The response is extremely fast, because we're directing water in positive ways. We're linking earthworks together with runoff, soakage, capture. We're making sure that our designs improve the landscape even when energy is switched off. These systems don't stop working these systems, can, you've got to literally physically remove them. The Roosevelt's wells are still sitting there out in Tucson, Arizona covered in trees. They weren't even planted. They're still quite stable ecosystems and no one's really maintaining them. Imagine how much the landscape would improve if we started at top catchment all the way through with positive earthworks and where we come across good earth resources, putting them to really sensible use. I hope many of you one day realize that when you swale a catchment, eventually you swale and dam a catchment, sooner or later, you're gonna end up with chinampa canals on the side of a hill, by default. After seven years of soakage, Rehydration buildup, there's about a seven-year pluming event. It's probably linked to the sun cycle. That your recharge gets to full capacity and doesn't get a lot more from there on. As you come down the landscape, sooner or later, lower down, you're going to put in a soft infiltration swale system, a soakage system, and by default of what's happened above, it turns into a water capture through soakage, through a recharge of spring lines. And at that moment, you'll probably look around the landscape and realize, wow, this could be a completely different situation if everybody did this. And you might then realize that we could probably get free energy from compressed air, from falling compressed water at terminal velocity with inputs of air bubbles so that we get a tromp wherever it's possible possible in fall. And I, I, I've been through that experience, and it was a wonderful thing to look around and realize oh my goodness, I can see free compressed air out through landscape. I haven't got time to look, go through it now, but just look it up. Look up Tromp, right? Look at Rapid Shoot Mine in Canada, and their, their Tromp that's been running for 60 years on simply the fall of water when you look at what's possible the earthworks out through landscape by default of our rehydrating landscape by harmonizing with the shapes in the landscape by capturing water the right way by patterning our work with the landscape we've shown an understanding of that climate we've shown an understanding of the trees and the ecosystems that then cover that landscape. We've shown an understanding of water and soil creation. The next possibility is that we have surplus water to vertically fall. At that point, we're suddenly in a different game. Because compressed air is a very clean energy. And if we have a peak air event, we're in another game. And when you're using compressed air inside your house, you're outgassing fresh air. And in a lot of circumstances, it's also when you release a gas that's compressed, including air, it's cold. And there's a lot of things we want cold, we want to make cold. It's a lot of energy spent on coolness, on cooling things down. It starts to repay itself in many ways. And it's, it's not a high-tech thing. It's nothing, there's no, nothing more high-tech, nothing particularly high-tech about it. And, it was, and, and the, the compressed air energy was discovered by the Romans. It's, it's a long time ago. And Andalusian smiths used compressed air in their forges southern Spain and the USDA is now using it to clean up some of your mine site outfalls in America from iron oxide coming out in rivers. Have a look on YouTube, I'll leave you with that one. All right, from from there you've got all the way through in the manual, you've got to earthworks and earth resources, you're starting to really focus now. You've got a real your focus has come so much clearer on how you apply design. Now, the, then the manual goes into the three classic climates. And the first, the two, the two of the chapters start with humid, the word humid, the humid tropics and the humid cool to cold climates. Two different humids but both humid. The rounded landscapes of the tropics, the rounded landscapes of the cool to cold climates. And they're very specific, they're very different. Your house is different, your garden's different, your forest layers are different. It's different design. Your storage of food is completely different. You hardly need to store food in the tropics. It grows in the ground. You hardly need a cupboard. But then the middle chapter in there, the largest chapter in the book, the middle climate is, starts with the word dry. <laughs> the chapter says dry land strategies. There's a big reason for that. It's all about timing. Strategies is not how you do something, but how and when. The strategy of approach in dry lands is crucial more than the other climates, you have to know exactly when you make your move. You're ready for those events when you get those rare rains and everything has to be captured. You're ready all the time for that timing. So it's a strategy, it's a timing event. Drylands has the word Dryland Strategies in it. All about timing, being ready for that time. When it's raining, You should be out there, you should be in it, you should be working with it and staying very closely in tune with those timings. Humid tropics, humid cool to cold and dry lands. Dry lands are very complicated. There's a lot of diversity in dry lands. And there's a lot of fertility in dry lands because nothing decomposes. It just sits there. There's no moisture to make it decompose. There's a lot of airborne nutrient blowing in the air, often ancient. When you work in dry lands, your bricks readings on your crops comes up faster than any other climate. Some of the healthiest landscape, if it's clean, it's some of the dirtiest landscape if you want to industrially grow food in dry lands. salts, heavy water use, evaporation, recycling of chemicals and chemicals and chemicals. It just keeps coming at you. Just look at the health records. Just look at the hospital records in dry lands where there's heavy-duty agricultural product. We're the guinea pigs. You can see it in the health records. So, then Bill goes through these climates. He specifically outlines each climate And gives you the reference of how you apply all that design through those climates, exactly. And you get not only the housing, the gardens, the forest, the grazing land, the farm forestry, and even the wilderness, you get a whole reference point through those climates. You specifically focus in now. Now you're really getting, you're fine-tuning your focus now. You know exactly where you've referenced into the book. It's very, very specific at that point. You're finding finer details, and and you then take that into further reading and further reference today, further examples today, because the permaculture movement's been putting down systems, and we've been diversifying things beyond imagination in all of those climates and coming up with results I mean they're out there they're, they're on the internet they're obvious if they're not on the internet they probably don't exist do they <laughs> why would they not be on the internet are you hiding something <laughs> is it secret it's not then we go into chapter 13 so we've going a we are going 10, 11, 12, and now chapter 13, aquaculture. It's almost like it, it should have been in the other chapters, but it's new, it's a rediscovered thing. It's something that wasn't our culture, but it's been removed. The Western English-speaking culture that is. some of the most productive landscape we can ever create. Agriculture is 30 times more productive in area than land-based protein production, let's say. But also, everything in water is more productive. The fastest growing leaf crop in, in, in the world is an aquatic crop. I float it on top of my ponds on floating bamboo islands. Kang Kong, it's a sweet potato genus, Ipomoea aquatica. It's a very high quality food, much better for you than any leaf crop you can grow in a garden, like lettuce or something. But it literally floats. You don't need to water it, because it's in water. <laughs> it grows on suspended nutrients. Water is a nutrient solution. Water, aquaculture, is inherently cleaner, potentially, than land-based systems because water is sensitive to toxins. A lot of water elements can't take heavy toxins. If anybody's kept a fish tank, they know what happens if you get it wrong. It all dies at once, all the fish are upside down all of a sudden. But water has been removed from the European an American and Western mindset because we over-exploited ocean phenomena of fish, particularly the Atlantic cod, was a, a phenomena, and it was a natural resource that seemed like it was endless, it got completely exploited, and from that, agriculture's been kind of removed out of our psyche. And when we talk about aquaculture, a lot of times people think we're just talking about fish. But it's everything in water. It's shellfish, it's crayfish, and it's plants. The most productive forage crop in the world comes out of water. Typhus, cattails. The most productive crop by weight in the world is Chinese water chestnut. It's an aquatic crop. In the tropics... Because of the instability of the shallow soils and the very heavy rains, only aquatic grain production in rice paddy has ever fed large populations. Because when you're working in the tropics, you have very shallow soils, every all the fertility is above the soil. Unless you're in water where the algae and mud suspend the nutrient. Water has that potential to hold up that fertility for you, but if you go on land-based in the tropics, the chances are you're gonna degrade the soil down to bedrock, down to, down to subsoil and then to bedrock, where you're really gonna go backwards and have to increase the, the inputs of fertilizer and, and extra chemicals. So there's a nightmare in the tropics, but the tropics does pioneer itself quickly. Uh, it's fragile but the dry lands are extremely fragile they're, they're brittle so your aquaculture is something that we need to then look at what are all the possibilities we've lost the understanding of aquaculture in all its creative forms We, it's it's there's no department of agriculture really in many places. It's one of the least fusty areas of agriculture. It's fast growing, it's become quite toxic because people have moved that production potential up very fast and they're still exploiting the ocean to feed agricultural product. But when you put it into our designs, often it's extremely Productive with very small amounts of inputs, even no input at all. Just by positioning elements, we end up with extremely easy production by including aquaculture. So, the most productive ecosystem that humanity's ever put together, the Chinampa system. One of the great sustainable systems in history was the most productive system ever documented. The most productive sustainable system was 50% water minimum. It was the water element that made the difference. So, aquaculture is a special subject that we're still exploring. It's something we're still extending. And cold climates and warm climates all have potential. Your wild rice in America here goes all the way from Canada to Florida in variation. And is more productive than your industrial rice production. It's a, it's a different species but it has more production. It just doesn't come right all at the same time. But it only takes a small paddling pool to produce enough wild rice, if you harvest over the 30 days that it comes right, to feed a small family. It's it's a typical aquaculture potential. So, from aquaculture as a separate entity, something that we have to be reminded of, unless you're still in one of those countries where there is production of traditional aquaculture, like Southeast Asia. If you're working in Southeast Asia through countries like Vietnam, you'll find there's more fish ponds than there are chicken pens. We have a lot to learn from those people. From from their understanding of how they look at their ponds, they can see exactly what's going on. They know the turbidity of the water. They know the color of the water. They know how to understand a pond just from looking at it and what it needs and what needs to be changed and where they're at in production. So that is a whole rediscovery subject, really. And there's so many references that we are now including. Final chapter, chapter 14, is like the Rubik's Cube, I think, of the manual, Strategies for an Alternative Global Nation. How we work with the invisible structures, how we work with the people systems, how we work with the exchange systems, how we set up village systems and interactions, how we set up the local currency systems, how we exchange and barter, how we work with the formal and the informal economies. This is one of the edgiest of all chapters, beyond patterns, which is the one people have trouble with. This is the other chapter a lot of people have trouble understanding. How we create our communities, how we set up our community land trust systems, how we create a system where we don't have perpetual growth in a finite world or perpetual capital gain in a finite world. How we get into... A world where money just doesn't keep going up in value against an exchange rate. Where properties go down in price and up in value. Where everybody understands how to behave in a way that improves landscape. So having quality land is something that's normal. Having land that's going up in quality rather than degrading in quality but going up in price how we live in a how we we set up our communities so we have an understanding of how we interact with each other so that we have meaningful existence how we start those processes so we share our design experience. So we share our happy little accidents and our sad little failures. How we interact together so that we understand who we can live with. Who are your extended family? Who are the 5% of people in this room that you could live with? There's probably one in 20 in this room that you could live with. That means you know the 19 you couldn't. It'd drive you nuts. But that's okay, right? As long as you can identify the one in 20 you could live with. Because right now you can't even do that. What makes a community? How do you actually form a village? How do we resettle the landscape so we can interact together? How do we form... How do we get a common glue? We say, this is what creates a diversity of people. This is what creates an ecosystem of people. When you start to create community action, it's the scariest of all action because it's people right in your face. It's where you're going to stand up in amongst people you know and say, I know how we can do it better there's a system here we can work with and we can re-identify ourselves we can even print our own money (laughs) we can print our own exchange rate I mean as soon as there's any large system collapse one of the first things we start to do is create our own currencies it's quite common When you put people to test on this, they kind of get a bit shaky. But when you look around, if you look around this room, what I see out there, I'm looking at all the faces here, and what I see, I see a typical group of permaculture people. You're all different ages, you're all different backgrounds, a lot of you are different ethnic backgrounds, you're different cultures, you're different life experiences. It'd be really hard to put you guys in one room normally. That's what a group of permaculture people look like. We look like a real mixed-up mob. And that's what we are. That's what we have to be. That's what Bill encourages you to be. When you read that chapter 14, what he's talking about is getting us back into that tolerance of community. And if you can cooperate around a common theme, if you can just meet, under a non-profit community group if you can put together a system where people meet regularly and a hundred people start to meet just once a month to cooperate around what they understand about permaculture effort locally what has worked and what hasn't worked, sharing their failures, sharing their successes sharing seeds sharing species sharing designs, sharing building techniques and you do that for five years you know exactly who you can settle land with you've identified everybody that's in your tribe in your extended family you know who they are and the other thing you've done is you've terrified the local politicians as soon as a local politician walks into a room like this and sees you guys looking like you are now they see 20 people in the local community represented by every person in this room and they're looking political death in the eye if they don't understand what you stand for if you just look at page 510 on chapter 14 in the manual, the bioregional resources listed I put it together as a fractal because I couldn't understand it as a list I had to see it as a mind map So I could teach it. It works globally. It's exactly what you'd love your local politician, your local government system to do for you. But they're not likely to do it, are they? It's going to make you more independent. It's probably going to make you ask them to serve you, which is kind of something like democracy is supposed to be. We vote people in who say they're going to do something for us and they do something else usually. But if you look at that that page 510, chapter 14, the bioregional resources, you'll see a list of exactly what you'd need to know when you want to resettle landscape anywhere on this planet. It'll work anywhere. I've put it together through 30 different countries in many different languages. And I haven't found anybody that says, this, is, this doesn't work, this works. Bill gave us that system to identify what it is we need to know to make this whole thing that much easier. And the the very, very last thing Bill puts in the manual, the very last subset there in the chapter 14, is appropriate aid in the developing world. An appropriate aid in the developing world is exactly what we have to offer the development world but they still have plenty to offer us as well okay that's me thank you
0: that was one of Jeff Lawton's talks from PV1 if you're wondering what that music was in the background that's basically how Jeff presented his talk he had a video running in the background And the music was also playing in the background, and he covered the Permaculture Designer's Manual with that running. So that's where that came from. Overall, I think Jeff did a really great job of summarizing this manual. We're talking a 600-page book that was summarized in about an hour. This is a great introduction for anybody who's looking to get into permaculture because they can listen to this show and one hour later have a pretty good idea of what permaculture is about. I think between this episode and episodes number 73 and 74, the What Are a PDC episode, there's now three episodes back to back that give people a great introduction into permaculture. What key takeaways are in here? It's hard to really pin anything down, but again, Jeff is just a consummate professional when it comes to explaining and talking about permaculture. It, I don't know if it's the Australian accent or his years and years of experience in working with Bill or what it is, but you hear him talk about permaculture and it's just infectious. You want to go out there and do permaculture. He's one of those teachers that Rosemary Morrow says are inspirational teachers. Now, he's also a great teacher of content itself. He knows his stuff, but not all teachers are really motivational. And Jeff comes across as somebody who's really motivational. And even if he's talking about the most mundane things, it just makes you want to go out there and do stuff. One part I really liked in there was towards the end when he talked about the top predator that controls an ecosystem how the wolves shaped the rivers in yellowstone park and how were the top predator and what are we going to do with our time here on the planet are we going to use our role as top predator to continue to exploit the planet or are we going to use our role as top predator to go out and turn things around when i was producing this show i went back and actually reread skim read i guess you could say the Permaculture Designer's Manual it was something I hadn't read in a long time. I spent a lot of time on the first chapter because I think it really lays out the path of how Bill went about coming to why we must do what we do and the crisis that the world was facing. And it's funny, a lot of the stuff written back then in the early 80s, even though this book was published in 88, a lot of these. Ideas and concepts came out of Permaculture 1 and Permaculture 2, which I think Permaculture 1 was written in about 1978. But a lot of these situations, you could read these things now, and they would fit our situation as we are on the planet today. They're more or less timeless. That change hasn't radically been happening. And I wonder if you go and ask, Bill, if you were writing this back in 1988, In 2014, how would you expect the world to be? And I don't know if he would imagine that we're living in the world that we are today. I think he would have thought that things would have been further along in terms of a regenerative standpoint. But that's something I'll have to try and ask him because he's one person I would love to get on this show. Within the chapters that I did reread, Chapter 1 being one of them, there's one really good paragraph in there, a couple really good paragraphs, and I just wanted to read those paragraphs to help sum up this episode and really provide a solid foundation of what permaculture is. Quote, Permaculture as a design system contains nothing new. It arranges what was always there in a different way so that it works to conserve energy or to generate more energy than it consumes. What is novel and often overlooked is that any system of total common sense designed for human communities is revolutionary. Design is the key word of this book. Design in landscape, social and conceptual systems, and design in space— and time. I've attempted a treatment on the difficult subject of patterning, and I've tried to order some complex subjects so as to make them more accessible. The text is positivistic, without either the pretend innocence or the belief that everything will turn out right. Only if we make it, so it will happen. As will be clear in other chapters of this book, the end result of the adoption of permaculture strategies in any country or region will be to dramatically reduce the area of agricultural environment needed by the households and the settlements of people, and to release much of the landscape for the sole use of wildlife and for the reoccupation by endemic flora. Respect for all life forms is a basic and in fact essential ethic for all people. So that was right at the end of chapter one that introduces permaculture. What he highlighted here is permaculture is the design system. It's bringing nothing new to the table. That's exactly what he said. Permaculture is a design system that contains nothing new. It arranges what was always there in a different way so that it works to conserve energy or to generate more energy than it consumes. And design is the keyword. That's his exact words. Design is the keyword of this book. So that's what permaculture is. It's a design science. Now, if we go to the end of the book, chapter 14, there's one paragraph in there that I wanted to highlight that I think sums things up pretty well also. Quote, In 1946, the ecologist Aldo Leopold foresaw two seemingly inevitable trends. One is the exhaustion of the wilderness as a resource in itself, although a remnant may be preserved in museums or as a genetic resource. And the other is the worldwide hybridization of cultures through modern transport and communication. The question arises whether certain values can be preserved that would otherwise be lost. Thus, in developing permaculture, we have the following factors in mind. One. We need to cultivate or construct the resources that we use, not plunder a failing wilderness. Two, all remaining genetic resources are to be preserved as far as possible on their native sites. This includes cultivated plants. Three, we need to accept that the hybridization of culture does occur, but at the same time preserves the values in all cultures that assist human happiness, responsibility, sharing, conservation, and good management. That is, we need to put an ethical or value base to our actions, end quote. So that brings the ethics into it. For anybody out there looking to go out and learn more about permaculture, check out the Permaculture Designer's Manual. I link to it from the show notes of this episode at permaculturevoices.com 75. And again, even though it was written in 1988, it is really the fundamental theory for which everything in permaculture is based. It consolidates it all down in one nicely condensed, albeit very dense, 576-page book. It's the basis for all PDCs, and it's what thousands and thousands and thousands of permaculturists have learned from. So go on and check that out. If you want to go out and watch this presentation that Jeff did, not just listen to it, you can go to permaculturevoices.com video. If you're not a subscriber, at that page you can go out and access the video to this talk and all the other talks that Jeff did and all the other talks that every presenter did at PV1. You can go up to permaculturevoices.com video and you can subscribe there. I really hope you enjoyed this show, and like I said, I think this show provides a great fundamental base to what permaculture is. If somebody's new to permaculture or you want to introduce somebody to permaculture, please share this episode. And this is also one I think people really into permaculture. You could listen to this one a few times and still get nuggets out of it every time you do listen to it. So put it on. And just zone out while Jeff Lawton talks to you about the PDM. I want to thank everybody for listening to this show. I want to thank everybody for listening to all the shows. To go out and support the work that I'm doing with Permaculture Voices, you can go to permaculturevoices.com slash support. On that page you can go out and contribute to the show and the work that I'm doing. Thank you for listening to the show. Keep doing great work. Great work that you love and make your own difference in your own way. Like I said in the introduction, from that Bill Mollison quote, all of us would acknowledge that our work is modest and it's the totality of such modest work that's impressive. There's so much to do and there will never be enough people to do it. We must all try to increase our skills, to model trials, and to pass on the results. If a job is not being done, we can form a small group and do it it doesn't matter if the work that we do carries the permaculture label or not just that we do it we're one of those small groups out there and we're all doing little bits of modest work and i can tell you from hearing from a lot of people that work is more than modest it's really great work so keep doing the great work that you're doing the work that you love and if you're not doing great work that you love Ask yourself why and make some steps and changes in your life to go out and do work that you love. Keep pushing the limits and go on out there and do some epic you-know-what.